0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. It's really about...
1: It's about a mediocre man.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds, Vox's policy podcast, coming to you now from our shiny new podcasting studio in the Box.com Washington, D.C. offices. It's really
1: exciting. We have a fancy table.
0: It's amazing. We have a wavy table. You will not be able to see the table if you come to the Weeds Live show.
1: But you will be able to see us. So just a quick reminder um, that we do have the Weeds Live coming up on April 18th at the Warner Theater in D.C. So if you live here in D.C., if you've ever wanted to visit Washington, D.C., what would be a better visit highlight than seeing the Weeds Live um, with Matt Nezra, and, and I without our table? You can buy tickets at um, vox.com slash Weeds Live. Find out a little bit more information there. And I suppose I'm
0: just at home wasting time on my computer but i want to engage more with the weeds
1: oh my gosh well have we got something for you just this week we have launched a new facebook group for weeds fans and weeds listeners i think there's already about 400 of you in it which is awesome um Matt and Ezra and I have been participating in discussions and comments. Um, You can find us if you just go on Facebook, search for The Weeds. You can sign up and be part of our group. And here is the most exciting part where this all comes together, is that we will be giving away free tickets to Weeds Live to two members of the group. We'll be giving away two pairs of tickets. That is a lot of weeds. If you are perhaps tired of the weeds, you want another Vox Between the Weeds
0: Live and and the Weeds Facebook and and listening to the weeds and and obviously um, everything else, you you might want a little break, in which case... Vox has, has a new, very different podcast uh, from our, our critic at large, Todd Vanderwerf. It's called I Think You're Interesting. He sits down with some of the just like most fascinating creators and, and people from, from the worlds of, of pop culture that, that he covers. You, you know, check that out. Uh, we also are excited to have with us today because Ezra decided that a meeting would be more fun than serving the audience. So we have subbed in Vox.com's politics and policy editor, Jim Tankersley, who is joining us. psyched to be here it's it's exciting to have you and
2: and this table is like my only weeds experience so it feels natural for you i know it's great
0: um so yeah we've got a great show we're going to talk about uh we're going to talk about some nuclear senate procedure talk about some swedish administrative data um but we are also going to talk about tax reform
2: oh man you know i love tax reform man. I love tax reform. I've been, Everybody does. I've, I've never met anyone
1: more excited about tax reform than Jim, though. You used uh, to cover this at the, at the Washington Post, I, right? I did,
2: yeah. and Yes. And I think legitimately only Rich Rubin at the Wall Street Journal is more excited about tax reform than I am right now. But he, it's like legitimately the only thing he thinks about all day. Tax reform, fundamentally, is the idea that you're not just going to cut taxes, but you're going to overhaul the entire tax code to try to make it work better To encourage more good things in the economy. In particular, we're going to be talking about business tax reform this year. And it's the idea that we're going to lower business tax rates. We're going to reduce loopholes in the tax code, deductions, little things that big companies can take advantage of to pay less in taxes, and treatment of taxation by the government in ways that pushes investment theoretically overseas. This is a long way of saying Republicans want to get companies to spend more money in the United States, and they think that if they cut taxes and change the way the tax code
0: works, they can get more of it. And so that's what we're going to have. But like the basic distinction, verbally, is that in a tax reform, you're supposed to be paying for rate cuts with some kind of loophole closings versus what George W. Bush did, which was essentially – He just sort of took the existing rate structure and made the rates lower.
2: Right. And the idea there was, which didn't bear out, was that the cuts would pay for themselves with increased economic growth, which would create more revenues. Um, So it's a tax reform of a type, but really it's not. It's tax cuts. When we talk about what you're talking about is revenue neutral tax reform, the idea there is, yeah, you're going to broaden the base of, of the number of companies and people who pay taxes while reducing the tax rates that they pay.
1: So, like, who is excited, like, tax reporters aside? Right. Like, who are the people who are super jazzed about this happening in terms of interest? And who are the ones who are like, over my dead body, I do not want to see this move forward?
2: So, in general, in theory, all businesses are super psyched about tax reform. It is the ever-lobbied, ever-excitement-building thing in the business community, because, in part because everybody hopes it's going to end up with them paying less in taxes and somebody else paying more. Um, Given the parameters of tax reform as we're talking about it right now, big multinational corporations are the ones who are most excited about this tax reform.
1: Because they expect a massive tax cut?
2: Yeah, because they expect, for example, Apple. Apple's excited about tax reform because Apple has a lot of money parked overseas. And right now, if it brings that money back, it's going to have to pay high tax rates on it. But the tax reform they're talking about would reduce the taxes Apple would pay on that money coming back. And so... They could bring money back, and they could buy more stock with it, or they could actually hire more people, or they could build new things, but they would pay lower taxes on that. And so they're psyched about it. That's a that's a boost for them. The ones who are really worried, and I'm sure we'll get into the details here, about the current blueprint for tax reform are retailers, because one of the pay-fors being talked about, one of the loopholes they'll close, or actually, it's a, it's a new tax they're basically talking about levying, is called a border adjustment tax. And and what that would do is, at least in the short term, raise the price of things coming in from overseas, which if you're a retailer and you're selling cheap imported goods, that could be really bad for your bottom line, if you're Toys R Us, if you're Walmart, if you're any of those guys.
0: Yeah. So like, let's try to explain. So like, like basic tax reform, which would be hard, would be to look at even just business tax reform. We be to look at the corporate income tax, which has a lot of deductions that people can take, and to just strike some of them out. And then currently the rate is 35%, and you could get it down on a revenue-neutral basis, maybe to 30, maybe to 29. I mean, it depends exactly how many you you struck out. But Kevin Brady has introduced a sort of an even more ambitious idea, right? which is to take something that, isn't really a loophole at all, right, and just bring this border adjustment concept onto the table. And and the way that works is that companies would be allowed to pay no taxes on income from sales abroad. So you build a plane, you sell it to Aeromexico, no taxes on that. But there would be no deduction at all for things that you import. So you buy a bunch of uh, toys from Chinese factories, you put them on the shelf. Uh, that's not considered now a business expense by, by Walmart or, or Kmart or anything like that. And so that kind of border adjustment could be revenue neutral. Uh, but in reality, the United States runs a large trade deficit. So it would raise a bunch of money. And then he wants to apply that money to making the rate quite low. I think 20% is his.
2: Yes. Yes. And and it's important, I think, to talk about what Kevin Brady is getting at here. I mean, there's this feeling among businesses that the United States is not competitive with other like big developed countries in terms of att- attracting investment that could go anywhere in the world. And that reason for that is what you just mentioned, that you you right now get taxed on your sales abroad if you try to bring that money back to the United States. So Kevin Brady would change that. But that's expensive to do because you're giving up a lot of revenue. Um, And it's especially expensive if you're going to change that and lower the rate, which is what he wants to do. So this is, yeah, like you said, the pay for. This is the way to do it is by changing that border adjustment. Now, there is a theory um, that a lot of economists have. I I would call it the prevailing theory among economists. that this will end up actually not um, hurting retailers over the long term because the dollar will appreciate uh, and so Americans will be able to buy more stuff anyway. So even if it's more expensive, the dollar is stronger, and it's it's fine. Um, in reality, I think Walmart and others are really worried. And it's not just Walmart; it's like REI. It's ev- everywhere anybody shops that imports anything. They're worried that adjustment's not going to happen, or the currency appreciation is not going to happen, and so they'll be left with consumers who are mad and can't buy as much stuff.
1: And is there, like, developing right now? Because I know one of the things we've seen, like, in Republican politics over the past few years is, like, a split between the conservative line of the party and, like, the general kind of leadership, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy area. Is there, like, a Freedom Caucus position on tax reform right now? Or, like, what is that split going to matter here? Because that seems to be kind of, like, the biggest thing that is driving policymaking right now in D.C.? I'm curious like, if it shapes up the same in tax reform.
2: Yeah, it is going to matter. And there, there's the Freedom Caucus position is that you don't necessarily need all these pay-fors, that tax cuts are going to pay for themselves or that if even if they don't, we can just cut spending and we should cut spending. And so there'll be a good forcing agent to cut spending. So, so do cut
1: Medicaid instead of like doing no, that's exactly a border right. adjustment tax and like yeah. cut the tax rates.
2: And it's important also to note that like there's no reason you have to do a border adjustment as part of a tax reform. There are plenty of other ways. Like Mitt Romney wanted to have a revenue neutral tax reform by cutting rates and eliminating a lot of types of deductions. Um, there are different, you know, Barack Obama wanted to to cut rates a little bit and actually raise revenue with his tax reform, uh, and then spend it on infrastructure. So there's no law that says you when you're approaching tax reform, you have to, you know, raise just enough money to pay for everything that you do. But the Freedom Caucus is going farther than that. And they are basically pushing for really aggressive tax cuts that will force spending cuts that will then lead back to all the problems we've seen in healthcare. And this is why when people think, oh, well, cutting taxes, that's going to be easier for Republicans. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's going to be easier than health care because so much of what we saw in the health care debate as the fissures of the Republican caucus will come to play in the, the fissures of tax reform. Plus, there will be fissures of the business community that we did not see in, in healthcare care that will get really ugly if they can't, you know, resolve them or decide essentially to punish one group, you know, in
0: favor of another something that I I think is is worth noting here is that you know as as you were saying Jim there's a it is often said by American businessmen and politicians who love them that the United States is not competitive in attracting international investment and you had some some leaks related to you know Donald Trump thinking about his trade talks with Mexico uh, China rather that he wants more investment but factually speaking the, the United States actually, attracts a great deal of international capital. I mean, this is like the sort of boring thing people don't like to hear about, but the the inverse of the trade deficit is an investment surplus, right? So when you hear that the United States has an $800 billion trade deficit or whatever, that means that foreigners invest $800 billion more per year in the United States than Americans invest abroad. So whatever it is people in their head. Think it is that is going wrong with America and China and factories and and whatever? It's it's not that no investment dollars come into the the United States of, of America, and there's a certain. I, I mean, I I think there's like a certain amount of incoherence in terms of what is it that people think they're trying to achieve with these these kinds of tax changes that. Yeah.
1: You know what on, yeah.
0: on, on some level I, I mean on some level <laughs> the the common sense I was just doing my taxes yesterday and uh I realized I hadn't thought through some some moves I made uh while making a down payment for a house and I owed more taxes than I thought I had. And it was a bummer because because I like money <laughs> and needing yeah. to pay the if money. If you can't
1: get your taxes right, like what hope do the rest of us have? Needing to pay have? the
0: money to the government made me kind of sad and I wish that it were different and I paid <laughs> less. And I think that's always been the sort of, that's like the common sense argument for tax cuts is that like people would rather have more money. Yes. And I, I think it's always something like really compelling about that. Uh, but that when they try to move into these sort of more highfalutin terrain, where like, what would, like, if Apple was paying less taxes, like, what would they conceivably be doing? Well, theoretically, like, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't giant... have as much
2: stuff in Ireland. That's the big... So, like, Apple doesn't like paying taxes to the US government either. But Ireland has given them a place, like, you can come here and not pay taxes or pay very, very little taxes. Right. And so they have located a bunch of stuff um, in Ireland uh, for the purposes of essentially tax-sheltering it. And that... And the idea is, the hope is, if we think about American companies who do that, and there are a lot of them, we can get them to bring that money back here. There's not... Now, the last time we tried this, when we gave, basically gave a tax holiday to American companies, okay, you can repatriate your money, bring it back, and then spend it as you will, the research found it didn't really boost investment at all. People right. bought, bought back a lot of stock.
0: Nice. Okay, right. I mean, it, it would be one thing if, if, like, you went to Ireland and it was, like, full of factories and big, tangible, physical investments that were being financed by, by all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, obviously, like, Apple... Wherever they say their money is, like actual Apple is in California. like that's there's a giant office there. that's where all their executives work, uh, things like that. and if they if they want to like it's true that the money is offshore, but it's just money. Like Ireland is not Ireland is not like actually the epicenter of the global technology economy. Nice. The companies are in California.
2: They are. The best argument you can make on this is that U.S. investment is down. There is just we, we have this kind of desert of investment in the United States right now. And that if that's because of international tax treatment, OK, um, that's that's something that maybe this could change. Um, it's also true, though, that and we get these things mixed up. Like it's not like Apple's going to stop outsourcing iPhone production if we cut down the corporate tax rate, they're still going to probably make most of their iPhones mostly in China. Right. Um, They're still going to locate some things in Europe because they sell to Europe. Right. There's the the global economy is going to stay global no matter what happens. It's just a question of, can you at the margins increase investment by changing tax
1: Also, Well, to Matt's point, I looked up some stats about Apple Island when you were both were talking and they actually do a significant workforce. They have 4,000 people in the Cork, um, Ireland, office. Apple claims they also employ indirectly 2,500 people, which you could probably quibble with how much. Well, yeah, they say that they exactly. indirectly employed but, like but 90 they have, billion
0: people. They have 4,
1: the th- right. They indirectly employ all of us. But they have 4,000 people at their headquarters. It's their only global headquarters outside of the U.S. So I think that's like a significant sized office and speaks to because this is one of the questions I've always had about when you're moving money abroad, like, what does that actually change? Is it, like, a shingle that says uh, Apple Ireland, or, like, do people actually move with it? And I suggest there is at least some people moving with it. The thing to me—I'm curious to get your take on this, Jim— is, like, you started this by saying people are excited by tax reform because, like, everyone expects at the end of the day, like, I will pay less taxes. And, like, Matt was saying— all of us would really like to like send like less money to the government. Um I paid a ton of money in taxes. I also would have preferred not to have do that this year. But at the end of the day if we're going with kind of like the house leadership approach, like that's not the goal, right? Like the goal is like you're leveling out through the tax system, all those tax cuts with close loopholes, with new kind of tax devices. It doesn't sound like the house is getting ready to deliver on that thing that most businesses are really excited about. I'm curious, like, does the rubber hit the road at some point? Or do like the big, like the big companies with like more lobbying dollars, like they get what they want and like they're happy. And like who cares if like the small pet store doesn't get the tax cut it's looking for? Or like how does, aside from like the Freedom Caucus view, if you deliver the tax cuts by cutting entitlement programs, like, is there a path towards delivering a tax reform, not just tax cut package that everyone's like yeah like we're we're really jazzed about these changes
0: yeah
2: okay two answers to this one the house proposal as written which will absolutely change they are hoping it will be revenue neutral on a dynamic basis which means after you account for extra economic growth which does mean everybody would pay less like that's a net tax cut on a static basis but two you have you have indirectly led us into my favorite part of the favorite tax reform discussion, which is pass-through entities. Small business tax cuts, this is how they're going to sell this. And this is one of the other incredibly thorny issues of tax reform, which is that a lot of American businesses, particularly small businesses, but also some big financial firms, oddly enough, are incorporated not as corporations, but as what are called tax-through entities, LLCs. I believe, Matt, are you now an LLC for Vox purposes or is that? No. Is that, no, no, no you're, that's you're an employee. Just, that's
0: just a joke. Right. For <laughs> for our, our Trump tax future. So, so the way this works, right, is you can form a, a partnership. Or a sole proprietorship. And you can say, okay, it's it's like a company for some kinds of purposes, but not for tax purposes, right? For tax purposes, we just say this income, it passes through and it arrives on your individual tax return. The
2: profits become – if you and Sarah start a podcast empire, just the two of you. And Weeds
1: LLC. Weeds
2: LLC. And although that may – Honestly, people in Oregon may have taken that LLC Probably. at this point. Um, but the profits from Wee's LLC become taxed at the individual rate for the two of you. Right. So a lot of small businesses are run this way. And it seems unfair to those businesses that they would pay a higher rate, 30-something percent, while corporations pay somewhere between 15 and 20, whether you go with the Trump plan or the House Republican plan. So the proposal that Trump made in about 18 different forms during the campaign is to equalize that treatment to tax pass-through income at the corporate rate, which would be a huge tax cut for small business, a huge tax cut for some financial firms, and and <laughs> just a massive incentive for every worker in America to incorporate as an LLC uh, and not be labor income, but to try to pay corporate income in your own life. And that would be... This will be a huge controversy of, of tax reform. And
0: it's, it's worth saying pass-throughs are small businesses in the sense that they have a small number of owners, not necessarily that the underlying business is small. So to have a partnership, right? You could have like me and Sarah could have a partnership. You could have five, six, a, a certain number of partners. But if you want to be a big public company with stock on, on a stock exchange, you, you can't be structured as, as a pass-through. But your partnership can be a really big business, right? So Donald Trump's businesses are pass-through entities.
2: Yes, he has hundreds of pass-through entities.
0: Right. And, and, the, disclosure. and the rationale for taxing a business at a lower rate than an individual is that the business in turn is owned by individuals, right? So the idea is Apple has profits. It pays taxes on the profits. Then the money is like sitting around in Tim Cook's desk drawer. And then if he pays dividends the shareholders pay taxes again, right? Whereas on a pass-through, you pay taxes just just once. And so theoretically, you would want to align these rates, but it seems like the way you would want to align it is that the corporate tax rate plus the dividend rate is like roughly equal to the pass-through rate. Yes, Trump is proposing, maybe has proposed doing it so that A pass-through would wind up paying, in effect, a lower rate than a shareholder in a big company, um, which is great. I mean, it it is legitimately good for classical small businessmen, right? I mean, you own a a dry cleaning shop or or a plumbing company. It's good for you. But it's also, like, really good for Donald Trump. It's really good for Steve Mnuchin and his hedge fund. And you can see a,
2: like, quick escalation of this in political terms Everybody wants something, and the easiest thing to do is to give people more. So then, shareholders say, "Wait, not fair! They're going to pay less than us." And so uh, the writers can, the tax writers can say, "Okay, we'll just get rid of dividend taxes," which at least a couple of Republican candidates proposed to do on the campaign trail so if we get rid of all dividend and capital gain taxes then that's the double taxation issue goes away right. um and then you know the loser the loser is always the deficit Matt I know how much you care about the deficit <laughs> but the loser is always the deficit and in deficit. this I <laughs> no, and in this case out for the deficit it would lose a lot and th- here is where they run into trouble also is that they have been promising Republicans for many many years that they will reduce deficits and debt because that is holding back economic growth. So if they propose a huge budget-busting package of tax cuts and reforms and then don't deliver on spending cuts, which the health care bill has shown us they are not really willing to do to a huge degree, then they are going to just blow up the debt and then um, they will be exposed as ideologically inconsistent, which I don't think anyone in Washington wants to be. Yes, it would be terrible. <laughs>
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try Try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. NatureBox.com weeds. On the subject of inconsistency. Oh. Yeah. Senate procedures. Senate
1: procedures. We're seeing some inconsistencies there as well. (laughs) A subject
0: in which people often express strongly held opinions, only to abandon them the moment I wouldn't say
1: people often. I'd say senators often. So here's (laughs) where we are right now. Um, As many of you know, um, the Senate is inching towards confirming um, Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch um, probably later this week. And that is likely going to mean that um, Senate Republicans are going to deploy something they like to call the nuclear option, which honestly seems like a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, it speaks to how the Senate sees their their rules and the protections of minority power as this kind of very important, very institutional thing, and that they are getting ready to blow this up. So what is likely probably going to happen, possibly by the time you listen to this podcast, and it'll likely be Thursday morning, is that there will be a series of procedural votes where the Senate Republicans will essentially get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. This already happened for other nominees in 2013 um, under Chuck Schumer and this Under one, Harry Reid. Under Harry Reid, sorry. Chuck Schumer's now the minority leader. So Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster. Um, he went nuclear in 2013, and the Senate Republicans under Mitch McConnell are preparing to do it now. And so, I mean, think— This really speaks to kind of the growing—the way that the Senate has increasingly become out of sync with polarization and that you have this old institution that is supposed to be very deliberative, is supposed to involve the minority, has a lot of protections for the minority. That is what the filibuster essentially is. It requires the Senate to get to a 60-person majority of its 100 members in order to move forward most legislation— that it is really struggling to to function in an era of increased polarization when 60 votes unless you are the Democrats in 2009 and have, you know, this uh, majority are really really hard to come by and really hard to cobble together. And so we are starting to see in 2013 now a bit of a, a of a breakdown of these minority protections because the minority protections seem to make action not not just slow and deliberative, but almost impossible. To
0: me, the most interesting thing that actually happened along these lines this week was that Mitch McConnell reemphasized that he is not going to deploy the nuclear option to stop Democrats from filibustering legislation. Bill Frist sort of pop the lid on this can in the in the mid aughts when Democrats were filibustering a number of circuit court nominees, um, a a pretty large group of them. And Frist and some Senate right wingers sort of mused, maybe we could just change the rules and confirm all these guys. And at the time, this felt like really unthinkable to longtime senators, which was how this nuclear option name came about. And the and the nuclear crisis was resolved by there was some gang. There was it, a gang. I think it was a gang of 13. I don't know. It was a pretty, pretty big, big gang. It was a big gang. It, it was a large gang. <laughs> yeah. And it resulted in a compromise where the Republicans withdrew like a couple of the nominees and Democrats agreed to confirm the rest. And Democrats sort of implicitly agreed to stop filibustering circuit court nominees, but there was no like formal pledge on it. But this was the kind of thing where like having put the gun on the table, it, it proved irresistible for Democrat to, to to keep using it. I mean, party control flipped around a few times over the years. And next thing you knew, Republicans were filibustering all of Barack Obama's circuit court nominees. So Harry Reid deploys the nuclear option, lets you go do it. But what what's interesting to me here is that McConnell is not like a, like a kindly old man who really cares about the precious feelings of the Democratic minority. The reason he's not eliminating filibusters on legislation is that Republican senators don't want to be able to pass legislation on a bare majority vote. As you see in the House, right, it's actually very uncomfortable For parties to be put in the position of being told, okay, you can now go do whatever you want, but you need to maintain unanimity among your members. It's actually a lot easier to say, okay, well, we can't pass anything unless we can get eight Democrats to agree to it. And frankly, if you can get eight Democrats, you can probably lose a couple Republicans and and get 10 Democrats, right? And like everything will be done in a bargain. It's a way of preventing like Dean Heller or Cory Gardner or Susan Collins from needing to constantly take really tough votes where they're, like, voting on Ted Cruz's legislative priorities. And so one thing you're seeing with with Neil Gorsuch is just that he's someone who every single Republican is, like, super-duper-duper comfortable with. And that's not the case for, like, every Republican Party legislative idea, right? So, like, they can say oh, well, you know, we can't change Obamacare consumer protections because of the filibuster. And so then you don't need to tell conservatives that, like, well, you disagree with them. You can say, well, procedure, right? Uh, but actually, Republicans all just agree on Gorsuch, which is one reason they're so, you know, willing to move forward. It's interesting, though, because Democrats
2: have, a I think, a strategic vacuum here with the Supreme Court. They don't really know what they're doing. Republicans care a lot more about the Supreme Court than Democrats do. This was an animating issue on the right. That's got a lot of conservatives who did not like Donald Trump behind his candidacy in the late days. Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme Court. And now they're delivering on that promise, whereas Democrats never really got a coherent strategy together to to get any sort of activist enthusiasm behind Merrick Garland when when Barack Obama appointed him. They 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 are upset that Republicans never held a hearing on Garland, but their people didn't come out and vote for it. I mean, all the people who defected to Jill Stein um, were not saying that whole time, like, we must get a Supreme Court justice confirmed. And now they have not really built an affirmative case to the American people of for why Gorsuch shouldn't be confirmed, but they are willing to blow up the filibuster for a guy who the polls show, like, more than half of Americans now want want to confirm and this just to me strikes me as very non-strategic. Um, if you're going to if you're going to blow up the filibuster you might want to have a strategy for how that could score a future win for you but instead it just seems like they are giving in to the desire to be seen as fighting Trump on everything even if they don't necessarily have a plan for winning that fight. Hi there, I'm Kara Swisher, the host of Recode Decode. If you like the weeds, then you should check out the recent episodes of Recode Decode that we recorded live at South by Southwest. In one of them, I interviewed the hosts of Pod Save America, Tommy Veeder, John Lovett, and John Favreau. In the other, I talked to the showrunner of Veep, David Mandel, and two of the actors, Tim Simons and Matt Walsh. That's Jonad Ryan and Mike McClintock, for those who watch the show. Give those episodes a listen and then leave me a review. Five stars. Find Recode Decode wherever you found this show or on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and more. See you there.
1: Yeah, so I think, like, this strategy, if there is one, is thinking towards the 2018 midterms to say, like, we, we did everything we can. Like, we're there. We're fighting. It still doesn't really have the appearance of it, though. Like like you were saying, like, it doesn't feel like this has been an all-out battle. And maybe that's just because of everything else that's been going on. Like, it feels like they have thrown way, way, way more energy at um, health care, which has faced much longer odds at moving forward than they have at um, the Supreme Court nominee fight. Like healthcare care felt like a much more animating thing for Democrats over the past few months. Um, I was curious that, you know, Matt brings up what McConnell was saying about the legislative filibuster. And one of the things I'm curious about is how much is that is influenced by the current legislative context and if there will be a willingness to revisit this like six months, like a year down the road. Right now, I think you're right. It really advantages the Senate to like blame the failure of healthcare on rules because they don't actually want to get behind the thing that the House might pass. And they really like me. I was like, well, like with 50 votes, we can only do the budgetary things. And like, sorry, right. guys, like it's our it's our weird Senate rules. They're just what they are. And, and it's like a great crutch to not be the ones who get blamed for millions of people losing insurance. The thing I wonder about is if you do get to a point where they have a bill that that they actually like, like, I don't know if it's with tax reform or infrastructure, if there's something else where they actually really are enthusiastic and they really do want to move it through. I think now that we've been inching in this direction, it's a lot easier to see McConnell kind of going back on the remarks. It's hard for me to see it as like a long lasting commitment given the change we've seen to Senate rules over the past decade or so, that if there's something, I-, I could very easily see Mitch McConnell, you know, like you said, like not this like kindly old man, but someone who wants to get his members elected, like saying, you know, the Democrats are being obstructionist. It's an important bill. We need to pass it and getting rid of it at some point in the future as like, and maybe it's only with certain types of legislation, like it happened with nominations as you kind of inch further and further in that direction. It's really hard to see how the filibuster continues to be compatible with kind of the deep polarization that we have right now.
0: But but I think that when legislative filibustering is done away with, it'll be done away with by Democrats, right? That there's an ideological mismatch, right? And so Democrats have a lot of affirmative regulatory ideas that they would like to implement. And at some point are going to be frustrated with being told that their House majority and 55 Senate seats is like not enough to pass a law saying that you can't buy a gun if you tell the gun salesman you want to use the gun to murder lots of people, you know, or, or something like that. Where it's like Republicans, I think, are very comfortable in a practical sense with telling the right wing of their caucus, oh, we can't do that. That unpopular, controversial thing because of the filibuster, and then doing deregulatory work through the administrative process. You know, you appoint people who are business friendly, who are laxer, and and it's okay. They don't have the same comprehensive vision. And then you have the the reverse on, on the Supreme Court, right? I mean, I think I think the trouble Democrats have getting people engaged and active is that you're talking about replacing the best known conservative justice with another conservative justice. So you can't, like, paint a horror story for Americans of the terrible conservative rulings that are going to happen um, because nothing new is... Like, you You don't have to, like, like Neil Gorsuch, but he, he's not shifting the balance of the court in any kind of way. And then you saw we had uh, Dylan Matthews after me haranguing him about this for a long time did a piece about like what can liberals look forward to if if merrick garland is on the court and and i have to say it was not that exciting i mean it was (laughs) it was good journalism but like if you think about what do progressives think of as like the big social problems in america they were not going to be fixed by merrick garland putting a progressive majority on the Supreme Court. Um, If you're super duper duper into criminal justice, a progressive majority could get rid of the death penalty, do some other things on criminal procedure. But also if you look at Merrick Garland's record, part of Obama making a gesture toward moderation is that he has relatively centrist to center right views, specifically on the criminal justice issues, which seemed like the only place where the court might really flip you know marriage equality and LGBT rights obviously was a huge issue for progressive activists for a long 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 time uh, but they've largely won on those subjects um the Supreme Court is not going to close the gap between the one percent and the 99 percent it's not going to create a Medicare for all system um there's no so I think it's like beyond like Senate Democrats tactics it's like progressives would need to develop, a jurisprudential theory that is at least credible to left wing judges and legal academics, and that would actually do something like interesting and worthwhile. People might be interested in it. Whereas like conservatives want to make abortion illegal. You know, I think they're like very clear on like what they're trying to get out of the judiciary at this point. And it's a strong motivator for a lot of them. It's like a, Big deal issue, and probably worth holding your nose over if you agree with the the sort of conservative position on it. Uh, of course, if they ever succeeded in doing that, you know, I think you would see liberals being very concerned as well.
2: Well, I think if you look at the statements that senators issued that nobody read about why they uh, opposed Gorsuch, what they say is essentially it's money in politics that. The people versus the powerful. The, yeah. They oppose Gorsuch because he would stand up for businesses and big money. Not and, the frozen
1: truck driver. Not
2: frozen truck drivers. He doesn't stand up for truck drivers who freeze to death, uh, allegedly. But um, what, what we see here is uh, the fruits of what could be an actual argument for progressives about why they should control a, a progressive majority on the court and why it matters to their base. But it's not a huge and persuasive argument in the same way that abortion or reversing the gay marriage decision or whatever is for social conservatives. Well,
0: and I I think part of it is that, you know, progressives have, I think, an instinct that, like, big money has too much influence in politics. And some people in the grassroots have the idea that that has something to do with the Citizens United ruling, but they don't really have, a like, an agenda. You know, it's really difficult for me to map out. Like, here are the things where had Merrick Garland been on the bench. Supreme Court would have ruled this or that is legal. Democrats had this legislation that was ready to go. This would have really, you know, leveled the playing field. Citizens United gets talked about a lot, but I don't think it actually made the kind of big difference that people sometimes think that it did. But like, campaign contributions and like the influence of big money in politics was like a huge deal 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, whatever it is. And there's, there's some sort of fundamental thorny, I think, conceptual issues that, you know, Democrats would have to sort out to get, I think people do care about the topic of like, money corrupting the political system. But to get people to care about a proposal, you would need to make make people feel like it would really make a difference. And I don't think anyone really thought that, you know, Justice Merrick Garland was what was going to, like, give us clean elections.
1: Yeah. I mean, if anything, the big liberal victories of the past few years have really been, like, about defending laws that are passed in Congress. Like, if you think of the healthcare victories, like, just all these things to keep in place, the things that are moving through Congress. And it kind of helps explain why it's, it seems to be less of a animating issue for the left that it's not like Matt was saying earlier there's more of a liberal bias towards lawmaking to creating new programs to expanding the size of government and making the Supreme Court an important tool to defend those if they need defending but not kind of the way you change the government whereas there is a lot more space for Republicans to change the government to take down laws both um, you know less so through Congress because it's just as we're learning with the healthcare law very hard. To dismantle programs that are already standing, but through regulatory means and through judicial means, and I think that's why you see this being, you know, such an animating issue on the right. In a way, it is not on the left.
0: Um, you know, I mean, I, I think these things are contingent and they and they change over time, but that there just hasn't been a real like movement to. There was. I mean, I I don't want to dismiss it. Like the the LGBT equality legal battles that were waged for a number of years were incredibly important. Although one thing is that, you know, progressives were able to win those battles by getting votes from Justice Kennedy and other um, uh, appointees from Republican administrations. So, you know, to an extent, liberals may be too complacent about some of these issues since they they like won some votes from some some Reagan and, and Bush appointees historically and and there may be better vetting going forward but I think something would have to change like not just in like what does Chuck Schumer and Patty Murray, like, hash out as their tactics? But, like, something bigger in, like, the world and, and the universe to create Like, if rule a-
1: got overturned, like, you could see all of a sudden the court becomes very animating for the left to protect, like, uh, to protect abortion rights, for example, if it kind of flips on that level.
0: Or, or I mean, there's, there's, like, work coming out of the New America Foundation and some people to try to get us to, like, rethink how we apply antitrust law. Right. If that gain more momentum it becomes more of a mainstream thing, something that people really care about and they feel like, OK, there's like a movement of judges who are going to restructure the economy. I mean, people might be very invested in that, but at the moment, right, like the top things on the progressive agenda, like expanding public health care programs, uh, regulating coal power plants, like that's just not stuff that judges are going to do for you
1: time for a white paper I don't have a good transit Ezra as, as usually does our transition zone he have is a,
0: he's a master of transitions. would he have done this one in Swedish
1: I don't know but that's a good transition to another paper about Swedish administrative data
0: I love Swedish administrative data um, as as I have have mentioned in the past uh, because it's it's just it's they have a lot of high quality data there um and it lets you research lots of interesting subjects so so in this particular case uh, Timothy Besley Ali Folka. Torsten Persson, Johanna Rickney, apologies to (laughs) Swedish people for my name pronunciations. They have produced Gender Quotas and the Crisis of the Mediocre Man, Theory and Evidence from Sweden. So Sweden has party list elections for municipal councils, which is to say a party just puts forward, they say like, these are 12 candidates, Uh, then everybody votes, there's proportional representation, so you get your top three people, your top four people, whatever, out of your list. Um, then a, a rule was was adopted by the Social Democratic Party in 1993. And they said all the lists have to be half women to, to equalize representation. And so that raises the question, okay, are we going to compromise meritocracy? Instead of having the best people on the list, we're putting uh, women forward. So they research this. They look at Administrative data based on uh, people's earnings in the marketplace, because you can look up just everybody's uh, taxes. Um, You can also look up for men their uh, basically their IQ tests from when they were drafted. Um, Really? I mean, it's anonymized, but you can do. You can do you can do linked administrative data,
1: Swedish administrative data. Yeah,
0: and That's it's really it's, it's particularly that. convenient because because Sweden had uh, conscription. It it went away more recently, but I think for most people who are politician aged in the nineties, uh, the, the men at least went through this, and so they had uh, armed forces IQ intake tests, um, and they show that in municipalities where the Social Democrats had to drop a lot of men from their list that the sort of average quality, quote unquote, of the remaining male politicians as measured by their labor market earnings and their uh, military uh, IQ tests went up quite a lot. And so for every 10% increase in the number of women on your list, you got like a 3% increase in the quality of the men. The quality of the women stayed essentially flat. Um, So you you didn't dilute it. You also didn't improve it. So they basically hypothesized that a lot of men, political leaders, had been kind of stuffing their list with, uh, they call them mediocre kind of cronies, and that when they were forced to get rid of some men, uh, they had plenty of, like, not so great stars on their team and were able to produce uh, replace them with with women who were just fine. So I don't know it's a it's it's an interesting kind of thing uh, it has it has a funny title um it exploits a, a novel research method um you know I mean I think one could reasonably question whether Private sector labor market earnings are a great proxy for the quality of a local Swedish municipal councillor. Uh, it's it's an interesting idea. And these
1: are earnings, so after they serve on whatever government. No, it's just it's, it's, is- it's like
0: it's a part time gig.
1: Oh, okay, got it. So they're doing something else. Yeah, so they're like, you know,
0: they're like lawyers or you know, making they, meatballs. They work at yeah, whatever the, they in do. The, <laughs> they work at IKEA. I don't know what Swedish people do. I think they, they mostly work at IKEA.
1: This is you know really relevant research as a lot of countries think about how to increase women's representation in politics. One of the things I found researching an article last summer about um. Women in politics is gender quotas are way more prevalent than I'd ever thought. A lot of countries have some version of, usually it's something like the Swedish system you're describing, Matt, where there's a requirement on, on parties to run a lot of candidates, if not usually not quotas that a certain number of, um, you know, women serving in government. But I think in Sweden don't have it to that effect because you kind of have that um, top-down list with the gender split and. I think one of the things you see in politics a lot is one of the big challenges is just getting in the door, like having those connections to run and to be at the right places, to raise the money. And I think that is it has generally been an environment that biases men, that biases a lot of the skills associated with men of being a good public speaker and being good at networking and being able to sell oneself. And so I wasn't super shocked that this was a lot of mediocre people who are just able to navigate the system really well, a system that was generally set up um, before there were ever women in politics, where it was set up in an era when it was just expected that only men would serve in politics. Um, so I think it's interesting to get a sense of, like, who you are losing. Do they have data, Matt, on, like, the the women that come in, like, how they stack up to the guys or they don't have IQ. I guess they might have earnings, but not IQ tests. But that's one thing. I'm One of the things we've seen in American research is that um, female legislators in Congress actually tend to pass more laws, just gener- introduce more laws. They tend to be slightly more effective legislators in the ways we can men- measure efficacy. Um, and I'm curious if you see any of of that happening, I mean, they didn't data. seem to
0: attempt to measure any of their actual efficacy as <laughs> politicians, which is a definite flaw. I mean, in terms of their quality as measured, they're just like the same.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting.
0: As as who was there before, right? I see Jim is looking I, at that. I, I at would the, like to point out that if if
2: you used at least half of this measure right now for cabinet appointees. You would find that the absence of any quotas for women or minorities in cabinet appointees has absolutely raised the median earnings of uh, the new cabinet versus the old cabinet by quite a lot, and yes. so that yes. would be that would be a danger of small sample size. <laughs> but I do I think this does point to what seems like an intuitive but important finding, which is that a lot of times people who are in over their heads like to surround themselves with people who will make, make them feel smart, right? Like if you you want to feel like you're not the dupe at the table uh, in a local council meeting, so if you want to surround yourself with other mediocre people that, no, there's a real incentive yeah, no, for that. that, that there's that an economic sense. incentive for that. And so a striking finding here is there's an absence of mediocre women to replace the medi- mediocre men with. And that, that seems to be in effect.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting that this, This does have, I think, the intended downstream effect, which is that you have now a a social democratic uh, cabinet in in Sweden, and it is very well stocked with with women ministers, uh, one of the most so of any sort of regime. And and they weren't doing any sort of reaches or stretches to to do that, that by making sure that at a low level of politics – they have lots and lots and lots of women on the different municipal councils the party is then just like very well supplied at higher levels of politics with women who are um just like have the reasonable credentials for for high level political posts which is something that you know i think i think if if the us democratic party had a mechanism to create this kind of system it would serve them well because there's a lot of Pressure, given who the Democrats' voting base is, right? Like when they are actually in power, there's a lot of pressure when a Democratic president is governing in a top down manner to have women in high profile, important type roles. But there is no, we don't have the kind of party list system that could ensure that half of Democrats' House candidates or half of Democrats' state legislative candidates were women. You're trying to do it in the American context from the top down, right? Whereas in in the Swedish party structure, you can do it from the bottom up, which is much more efficacious in generating the kind of outcome that that is being looked for. Uh, But because in America, the whole political system is very, very entrepreneurial. Somebody has to just like go run for a house seat and the president can't make them or you know, make, make mediocre men step aside, it's, it's much harder to generate these kinds of reforms.
1: Right. And one of the things that shows up in the research from, um, Jennifer Lawless, who's a political scientist at American university, she's done a lot of work on gender equity and politics. And she finds, if you look at men and women who are roughly of like the same level of accomplishment, who are in the fields that tend to feed into politics, like who are lawyers or somehow involved in local governance, um, men are just generally much more likely to volunteer themselves to run, to say, you know, I think I would be a good member of Congress or I think I would be a good city council um, member. They're much more likely to see themselves that way, to say they want to run, to say that the activities of running sound appealing to them. And I think that speaks to why these Swedish lists actually matter a lot and why you've seen a, a big number of countries like adopt a version of this is that it forces at the very ground level more women to essentially raise their hand. And I think the research from Jennifer and a few other political scientists suggests once you actually get women in office, they tend to, for example, they tend to raise as much money when they're running. They tend to win at equal rates as men. Like the real bottleneck is just getting people to run for office and that this is exactly where this Swedish intervention is is aimed at.
2: I was... Doing some interviews for a forthcoming piece last week, and one of them was with Ken Salazar, who, in a little bit of like full circle on the show, was a member of one of those gangs back in the 2000s, <laughs> um, but was the chair of Hillary Clinton's uh, transition effort should if she had won presidency. And we were talking about what kind of cabinet she would have had, and he stressed again and again and again how diverse it would have been and that it would have been 50% women. Uh, at least, and that this was a big thing that they were going to push for. And that's the sort of top-down approach that right. we haven't seen uh, very often, not even you know even Barack Obama did not have a fifty percent female cabinet when he started. And so that is sort of the extreme end of top down like you're talking about, and sort of what you are forced to resort to if you think this is important and don't have those bottom- up mechanisms. But they critically thought that would have made a much more effective cabinet. They believed in it, not for diversity's sake, but they thought it would have been a just much more stellar, standout group of of lawmakers than the alternative.
1: Well, this kind of relates to Romney's like binders full of women, right? Which was like mocked a lot at the time, but I don't know, it's not a terrible, like that's essentially what these Swedish lists are doing at the at the very lower level, is they're actually just trying to generate a lot of names of women who would be very good at politics, but haven't actually volunteer themselves for for the role.
0: Right. I mean, to force you to stop and and think. Um, but I mean, again, it's I think it's an advantage of, of a party list type type system. I mean, you know, I, I was looking at the uh, Georgia sixth uh, special election, as we all are now. Um, and and John Ossoff, the like leading Democratic contender is very like, I don't know, it, it's like, it's just such a like man thing. You know, he's like, he's 30. And for a 30 year old, he's very well Qualified for a House seat. But that's just to say he's like not really that well qualified. Like he was a low level House staffer for a few years and he did some documentaries on international security issues. Um, but mostly it's like he lives in the district. <laughs> he's from there. He's a Democrat. There aren't a lot of Democrats there, but it seems like Democrats have a shot and he wants to run right like it he he now looks like he has a real shot at winning but at the time he threw his hat in the ring this was like a super long shot kind of lark type thing and it just like it requires a certain overconfidence yes. <laughs> that i think is associated with young men to put yourself in the kind of situation where you might win fluky special election Races, and it's just it's very different from a system where it was like, look, if Democrats just every year had to write down some people who seemed well qualified, and then you could say you got to make sure half of them are women, they would not have like difficulty, I think, coming up with those names. But it is just it's historically, and I think, continues to be a lot rarer to see, you know, you and you see this in in job applications too. It's just like. It, it's, it's rarer for women to sort of make that, like, stretch. Like, yeah, sure, I could be a person right? Right. Okay. That's the weeds. The weeds. That's great. Um, thanks to you for, for listening. Uh, thanks to Jim for, for joining us. Uh, thanks to our uh, producers, Bird Pinkerton and Peter Leonard. Have a great week.